0: In episode 20, I talked about lake monsters, one that was definitely fictional, and one that may indeed be lurking beneath the waters of Chesapeake Bay. This episode, I want to talk to you about some animals that definitely exist, but they have some qualities that seem like they come straight out of the mind of a science fiction writer. A micro animal that can survive in the frigid vacuum of space? Venomous snails? A snail with an iron shell that lives in the deepest depths of the ocean? And a crustacean with a strike so powerful it can break aquarium glass? These may seem like aliens or urban legends, but these creatures show that sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The first animal I want to tell you about may be no bigger than the period at the end of a sentence. But tardigrades, also known as water bears or moss piglets, are one of the toughest animals on the planet. The largest tardigrade reaches a not-so-whopping 1.5 millimeters, or about 6 one-hundredths of an inch. They're short and plump, with four pairs of legs which end in claws or suction discs. Tardigrades are found on mosses and lichens and feed on plant cells, algae, and small invertebrates. There's about 1,300 species of tardigrades, and they've been found in every biosphere on the planet, from the top of the Himalayan mountains at 20,000 feet above sea level to the deep sea at 13,000 feet below sea level. They can be found in tropical rainforests, hot springs, mud volcanoes, and in polar regions living under solid ice, not to mention everything in between. Now, given their size, it's not like they're going to sneak up and take you down, but when it comes to enduring harsh conditions, no animal can match the tardigrade. Now that's a big claim for an animal that, under ideal conditions, has a lifespan of anywhere from four months to two years. And yet, tardigrades can survive conditions that would quickly kill any other animal, and they've survived all five mass extinctions on the planet. So how do they do it? Well, when exposed to extreme conditions, tardigrades have the ability to suspend their metabolism. While in this state, their metabolism lowers to less than 0.01% of normal, and their water content can drop by as much as 99%. They can go without food or water for more than a decade, and when rehydrated, they'll pick up right where they left off, foraging and reproducing. In this desiccated state, They can survive temperatures of negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit for up to 30 years and even survive a few minutes at 1 degree Kelvin, which, for the record, is negative 458 degrees Fahrenheit. On the other end of the thermometer, they can survive for a few minutes at over 300 degrees Fahrenheit. They can withstand exposure to the low-pressure vacuum of space and some species up to six times the pressure of the deepest ocean trench. Got radiation? No problem, says the tardigrade. They can handle exposure to 1,000 times more radiation than other animals. And they can even survive impacts of up to 900 meters per second, which is over 2,000 miles per hour. Don't believe me? Tardigrades are the first known animal to survive after exposure to outer space. In September 2007, tardigrades were taken into low Earth orbit. For 10 days, groups of tardigrades, some of them previously dehydrated, some of them not, were exposed to either the hard vacuum of outer space alone or space plus solar UV radiation. When they returned to Earth, more than 68% of the tardigrades that were protected from solar UV radiation were reanimated within 30 minutes following rehydration. Although the ones that were exposed to solar radiation had significantly higher mortality, a few actually did survive. Now this has some interesting implications. In recent years, there's been increased speculation about the ability of tardigrades to survive on, say, Mars without life support systems, which in turn has fueled efforts to colonize Mars with tardigrades. Tardigrades may end up being the first Martians. Okay, what would you say if I said venomous predatory sea snail? Cone snails are small to medium-sized tropical sea snails with cone-shaped shells. Big surprise there, right? Shells of many species are also brightly colored and patterned. The largest species of cone snail can grow up to about nine inches long. Cone snails are carnivores. They eat things like marine worms, mollusks, including other cone snails, and fish. Yeah, you heard that right. These snails sometimes hunt fish. Now, you might be asking yourself, how in the world does a snail catch a fish? Are these snails exceptionally fast or something? Nope. Cone snails are just as slow as any other sea snail. But they've evolved a way to catch prey that are much faster than they are. They use venomous harpoons. Yep, you heard that right, too. They harpoon their prey. And if that wasn't enough, they don't even use their eyes to detect prey. They use smell. So just to review, cone snails can hunt fish by smell using a venomous harpoon. Now to understand how this works, we need to talk a little bit about gastropod anatomy. Most mollusks, the exception being bivalves like clams, have a structure called a radula that is used for feeding. It has been compared to a tongue, but think of it as a tongue with small teeth on it. It's typically used for cutting or scraping food before it enters the esophagus. The arrangement of these teeth varies by species, but in most mollusks, they are arranged in rows. On a side note, there's another type of predatory sea snail called a moon snail, which feeds primarily on other mollusks, which it attacks by boring a hole through the shell of its prey using its radula and an acidic secretion. Talk about Ocean's Eleven. So back to the cone snail's harpoon. The radular teeth of the cone snail are barbed and hollow. Each one is attached to the radula inside what is called the radular sac in the throat of the snail. All of them, that is, except for the one that is loaded up and ready to fire. Each one is also attached to a venom gland. When the snail senses prey within range, it uses powerful muscles to fire the poison harpoon. The venom can paralyze small fish almost instantly. Now many species are nocturnal, attacking fish while they're sleeping, and some will release venom into the water to make the fish groggy before engulfing them with an extendable mouth like a net, known as net hunting, and then firing their harpoon. But once they've harpooned their prey, the snail retracts the radula, drawing the subdued prey into the mouth. After the prey has been eaten, the snail regurgitates any indigestible material like spines or scales, along with the now-disposable harpoon tooth. Cone snails constantly grow new teeth, so it will never be unarmed. Because of their colorful shells, people frequently want to collect them, which, if they're still housing a snail, can result in a snail sting. Now, while smaller snails are not usually a threat to humans—getting stung is said to be similar to getting stung by a wasp—the venom of larger, fish-eating species can be fatal to humans. One species, the geography-cone snail, is known as the cigarette snail because it's said that the victim of a sting from this snail will have just enough time to smoke one last cigarette before they die. Interestingly though, the venom of the geography cone snail and also the tulip cone snail consists of a type of insulin and they are the only two species known to have weaponized insulin. But the fact that this snail insulin can bind to human insulin receptors has led to research into using it as a fast-acting therapeutic insulin. Cone snail venom has also been used to make a pain reliever that's a thousand times more powerful than morphine, and it's being investigated as a possible treatment for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, along with epilepsy and depression. Medicines made from cone snail venom appear to have little to no side effects thanks to the way the venom operates. So what's cooler than a venomous snail? How about a snail with an iron shell? The scaly foot snail, also known as the volcano snail, or my personal favorite nickname, the sea pangolin, lives deep in the Indian Ocean and only near hydrothermal vents, at depths between 8,000 and 9,500 feet. It was discovered relatively recently, in 2001. The shell of the volcano snail consists of three layers. The outermost layer consists of iron sulfides, which also armors the sides of the snail's foot. This is the only living animal known to incorporate iron into its skeleton, or in this case, exoskeleton. The middle layer of the shell is organic, much like other gastropods. This layer helps dissipate heat and mitigate mechanical strain and energy, like, say, from getting squeezed by a crab's claw, which makes the shell stronger. The innermost layer is calcium carbonate, just like other mollusks. Proportionally speaking, the volcano snail has an unusually large heart. It makes up 4% of its body volume. For reference, a human heart averages about 0.3% of body volume. Volcano snails have no eyes. After all, there's no light that deep in the ocean. But it doesn't need eyes because it doesn't hunt. Volcano snails get their nutritional needs met by a type of bacteria that live in the snail's esophagus. This relationship is called endosymbiosis, which is when one organism lives inside another one. Endosymbiosis is also your $5 word of the day. The fact that these snails and their symbiotic bacteria can produce energy without photosynthesis suggests that other planets with vastly different conditions from what we have on Earth could sustain life of some sort. There's no such thing as a male or female volcano snail, because volcano snails are both male and female at the same time. This is actually not as strange as it sounds. Land snails, slugs, and earthworms are also what is known as simultaneous hermaphrodites. But the volcano snail is the only member of their scientific family that displays this characteristic. They can mate with another snail, but self-fertilization is not uncommon. Now this snail is not only remarkable for its anatomy, but for the habitat in which it lives. Tardigrades can survive exposure to harsh conditions, but the volcano snail has evolved to call some pretty harsh conditions their home. First of all, as I mentioned, they live at depths between 8,000 and 9,500 feet, where the water pressure alone is crushing. Secondly, they live near hydrothermal vents, specifically vents known as black smokers. Hydrothermal vents are found in volcanically active places and are where superheated water, as hot as 400 degrees, escapes from the sea floor. Black smokers are vents that discharge high levels of sulfur-bearing minerals. When the superheated water from the vent comes in contact with the cold ocean water, many minerals precipitate, forming a black, chimney-like structure around each vent. The habitat of the volcano snail is in what we call the transitional zone, somewhere between 3 and 7 feet from the vent itself, where the water temperature is between 35 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that doesn't sound so bad, but this habitat is low in oxygen and high in hydrogen sulfide, the same thing that makes rotten eggs smell. So not exactly a garden spot in the ocean. Now, the last species I want to tell you about is not venomous, and it doesn't have the ability to withstand extreme conditions, but it does have some abilities that are the stuff of science fiction, the mantis shrimp. Incidentally, they're not actually shrimp. They belong to the order called Stomapoda, which began evolving about 400 million years ago, 170 million years before the dinosaurs. Mantis shrimp looks somewhat like crayfish, but With a set of prey-catching arms that look like those of a praying mantis. They're very colorful and generally don't get very big, averaging only about four inches, although some species can be over a foot and a half long. They live in tropical and subtropical shallow marine habitats where they spend most of their lives tucked away in burrows and holes, often at the bottom of coral. The first thing that makes mantis shrimp stranger than fiction is their eyes. Their eyes are mounted on stalks and can move independently from one another. That's not that unusual, right? But the mantis shrimp has the most complex eyes and visual system ever discovered. Think of all the colors that you can see. You can see all those colors thanks to just three different types of photoreceptors in your eyes. The mantis shrimp has between 12 and 16 different types of photoreceptor. We can't even imagine the colors the mantis shrimp can see. They can see light ranging from deep ultraviolet, which is invisible to the human eye, to the far red end of the spectrum, which is just barely visible to the human eye. They're also sensitive to polarized light. In addition, some species of mantis shrimp can adjust the sensitivity of their long-wave color vision to adapt to their environment. This is called spectral tuning. Tell me that doesn't sound like something out of a ghost story. The way the receptors are configured allows the shrimp to see an object with three parts of the same eye, giving each eye trinocular vision and therefore great depth perception. Now biologists don't entirely know the advantages that this complex visual system provides the mantis shrimp. The eyes of the mantis shrimp may enable them to recognize different types of coral, Prey species, which can be transparent or semi-transparent, or predators, like barracuda, which have shimmering scales. Also, the way they hunt, which I'll talk about in a minute, may require very accurate ranging information, which would require very precise depth perception. Their sensitivity to polarized light may be used in sexual signaling in a way that doesn't attract the attention of predators, a type of secret communication. During mating rituals, mantis shrimp actively fluoresce, and the wavelength of this fluorescence matches the wavelengths detected by their eye pigments. What's also interesting is that females are only fertile during certain phases of the tidal cycle. The ability to perceive the phase of the moon helps prevent wasted mating efforts. It also may give this shrimp information about the size of the tide, which as you can imagine, would be important to a species that lives in shallow water near the shore. What makes the mantis shrimp even more amazing though is their attack. Now there's about 450 different types of mantis shrimp, but they can all be divided into two categories, spearers or smashers, based on the type of claws they have and their method of hunting. Spearers have spiny appendages with barbed tips These, unsurprisingly, are used to stab and snag prey. Smashers have club-like appendages, along with a more rudimentary spear, not its primary weapon but still quite sharp. Because of these sharp spears, they are often called thumb splitters because of their ability to inflict a painful wound to those who don't handle them with care. Both spearers and smashers attack by unfolding their claws rapidly and swinging them at prey. What makes this so amazing is that they can do it with incredible speed, accelerating their claws away from their body at 50 miles an hour, about the same velocity as a 22 caliber rifle, and delivering a force of 1,500 newtons, which is enough to smash through crab or clamshells, and even normal aquarium glass. If you or I could accelerate our fists that quickly, and our hands were hard enough, we could punch through steel. So why don't the mantis shrimp break their claws? Beneath their clubs, mantis shrimp have special layers of chitin, the same thing that their exoskeletons are made of, which are positioned so that they act as shock absorbers. This structure is called a booligan structure, and it keeps small cracks from becoming a full break. Researchers have actually studied the cell structure of mantis shrimp for possible applications in advanced body armor, car frames, and aircraft panels. But the punch of the mantis shrimp is so fast, it results in something called cavitation bubbles. This is a superheated bubble, and even a small flash of light, which just for a split second, generates a temperature of nearly 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit in the surrounding water. When these bubbles collapse, they cause an intense shock wave, which is like a second punch, and it can stun, dismember, or kill prey instantly even if the mantis shrimp misses. Not that unlike an alien punching its way out of the chest of an unsuspecting astronaut. Just saying. And with that, I'll end this episode. Thank you as always for listening. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, feel free to email me at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to help support future episodes, please check out my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. Tiers start at just $5 a month. You can find all that information at patreon.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.